So to begin, um, I've just talked about how we use our attention as the primary pathway to building structure in our own brain, which is the basis for learning, for growth, for healing, for changing for the better, right? And so I want to create a kind of a framework for this whole idea of self-directed neuroplasticity. In other words, using the mind to change our brain, to change our mind for the better. So to get into this topic, this is a brain, okay? Three pounds, tofu-like tissue inside the coconut, doesn't look like much. Most complex, complex object currently known to science, about 1.1 trillion cells altogether, 10% or so, 100 billion or so are neurons. Uh, they make connections with each other, about 5,000 connections on average per neuron, giving your brain a network with 500 trillion synapses, those little connections between neurons. The brain is the world of the very small, the very fast, and the very complex. Uh, you could put roughly five neuronal cell bodies side by side in the width of a single hair. Uh, you could put 5,000 of these little connections called synapses side by side in the width of a human hair. They're that tiny. Uh, neurons typically fire five to 50 times a second. So you can just imagine this quivering network, uh, 500 trillion little nodes, uh, little synapses, through which signals are streaming amidst some noise uh, five to 50 times a second. Sometimes slower, sometimes faster, but roughly in that range. That's why the brain, even though it's only about two to 3% of body weight, uses 20 to 25% of the metabolic supplies, uh, the oxygen and glucose uh, that's uh, you know, held in uh, and moved around by the blood. So what does this organ do? What's its function? Its function is to move information around in an architecture of neural and informational or mental activity, most of which is forever unconscious, uh, that uh, at the top of the architecture is conscious experience, which is what we're aware of. Sights and sounds, taste, touches, the 10,000 joys, and the 10,000 sorrows. Now, as a frame of reference here, apart from whatever is transcendental or supernatural, hypothetical X factor, apart from whatever that is, the mystery, whatever, apart from that, we're left with the natural frame. And inside the natural frame, Therefore, awareness, unconsciousness, uh, mindfulness, delusion, suffering, and joy, all of that must fundamentally be a natural process. So I'm not asserting that there is a transcendental. I'm not asserting that there's not a transcendental. Personally, I am a theist. I think there is a transcendental woven into the fabric of reality, etc. But other than that sentence, I will stay within the natural frame. Uh, and inside the natural frame, mind is fundamentally a natural process. And that's the frame I'll be working in here. And seeing how we might use this frame uh, for the benefit of ourselves and other people. Now, as we do this, it's important to appreciate that it's still a deep mystery how human subjective experience, or the subjective experience, frankly, of a squirrel, or a cat, or even a frog, how subjective experience phenomenology, as it were, the qualia, so-called, let's say, of the color red, or the smell of an orange, or how we feel irritated when we're interrupted when we're trying to talk, or how we feel loving toward our friends and family. It's a mystery how that experience, as 
uh, on the Venerable Tenzin Palmo says here, how even a thought appears in the mind. We don't know yet. But it's presumed, once you set hypothetical transcendental x-factors outside the frame of reference we're working in, it's presumed that somehow even our own subjective experience is fundamentally rooted in, it depends upon, underlying natural processes. It's still a mystery. But the correlate between neural activity and the mental activity that depends upon it is getting increasingly tight based on modern science. What that means is that any kind of thought or feeling, equanimity or upset, depends upon underlying neural activity. This is the fundamental uh, framework of modern neuropsychology. For example, this is an image, an MRI shot, a monk uh, sliced this way, looking in that direction from your perspective. And the orange blob there is the cingulate cortex, a part of the brain that activates. It gets really busy. It starts working when you're exercising top-down control over attention, when you're exercising executive control, deliberate control of attention, as you were doing just minutes ago in the mindfulness practice there. So mental activity has changed. There's a, a emphasis on controlling attention. This is a monk in an MRI scanner sending boundless compassion to all beings, trapped in a claustrophobic tube with loud noises all around him. He's got to concentrate. So he's working that muscle, the cingulate cortex, so he can exercise top-down control over his attention. Right? If you're interested in mindfulness, if you're interested in helping fifth graders pay attention to long division in a sleepy afternoon, you know, we're interested in the cingulate cortex. Now, it looks like the rest of the brain's gone dark, right? Kind of like a campfire late at night in the lonely woods. But no, it's just 2 to 3% more metabolically active. But that's a difference that makes a difference. The point is that mental activity, in this case, deliberate control of attention, entails, requires, depends upon underlying neural activity, in this case, activity in the cingulate cortex. Now, repeated patterns of neural activity, which represent mental activity, both conscious and unconscious, repeated patterns of neural activity build neural structure. Neurons that fire together, wire together, in the saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist, Donald Hebb. Here's a little image of that. Okay. Neurons that fire together, wire together. You're going to memorize that phrase. It's going to become a new rap song. I'm going to do something. I don't know. People pay me not to sing, but okay. So, and here's a slide that demonstrates how repeated patterns of mental activity literally build neural structure. This is a study done on meditators compared to controls. Uh, there are many other examples whereby repeated patterns of mental activity for better or worse, actually change the brain. For example, repeated experiences of stress, particularly chronic, moderate to severe stress, releases so much cortisol in the bloodstream uh, that makes its way back up into the brain that that cortisol gradually over time sensitizes the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala, makes it more reactive and more powerful. It rings louder and more easily, the amygdala does. and Chronic flows of cortisol also overstimulate and eventually kill neurons in the hippocampus, a different part of the brain right next to the amygdala that calms the amygdala down, puts things in perspective, 
and also tells the hypothalamus, another part of the brain, to quit calling for stress hormones. This creates a vicious cycle. In other words, chronic severe stress, even moderate chronic stress, uh, releases cortisol that sensitizes the alarm bell, weakens the controls upon stress reactions, therefore stress today makes us more vulnerable to stress tomorrow, which makes us even more vulnerable to stress the day after. That's an example of repeated patterns of mental activity and its underlying neural correlates, and including hormonal correlates, gradually leaving lasting changes in the brain for the worse. On the other hand, a more positive example, London taxicab drivers. They have to memorize the spaghetti snarl of streets in London. They work their hippocampus, which also does visual spatial memory. They work that muscle so it got bigger. At the end of their training, these London taxicab drivers had measurably thicker cortex. That's the layers of the brain where the kind of action is for information processing, for mental activity. They had thicker cortex in the hippocampus because at the end of their training as taxicab drivers, they had had to really memorize those snarls of streets there in London, really work visual spatial memory, and they built up structure in their own hippocampus. A little more esoterically and maybe relevant to this group, I don't know how many cab drivers are in the room, but we've all found out that we all meditate at least a minute or more a month. This study, Sarah Lazar and colleagues out of Harvard, compared uh, meditators to match controls and found that the meditators had measurably thicker brain tissue in three key regions, one, two, and three in the slide here. This is a blobby brain looking that away. Region number one is the insula on the inside of the temporal lobes uh, that does interoception. We tune into ourselves. If you take a breath now, notice that it's warmer going out than it was when it came in. Cooler coming in, warmer going out. You use your insula. If you tune, tune into your feelings, your, your deeper needs and desires, your drives, that's also the insula. And if you tune into the emotions of others, you're working your insula as well. So interestingly, by tuning into oneself repeatedly, that builds up the capacity to have empathy for the feelings of other people. So these meditators, they work that muscle. What does meditation do? Mindfulness meditation especially, you're tuning into yourself again and again and again they got a benefit there. They built up structure in the part of the brain that does that. Also, region number two, prefrontal regions toward the front linked to that cingulate cortex, the executive regions that bring attention back again and again and again, so set the intention to meditate, exercise some top-down control. Regions number two, right behind the forehead, the meditators built up structure there as well. And then last, Region number three, somatosensory cortex, just at the top of the brain, uh, got, a got a little benefit there because they were repeatedly tuning into their bodies. By the way, a little detail, most parts of the brain come in twos, like the animals in Noah's Ark, right? There are two amygdalas, there are two um, hippocampuses, there are two insulas, but the convention is to speak of them in the singular, so generally I'll do that. There's only one hypothalamus, which we'll get to a little bit later. It's a very fundamental source of drive states and disturbance states. So if we're interested in equanimity in the brain, we're very interested in the hypothalamus. And I'll come back to that part of the brain later. So the larger point here, though, is that repeated patterns of mental activity entail uh, repeated patterns of correlated neural activity. And repeated patterns of neural activity leave lasting changes in neural structure through a variety of mechanisms, including the ones given in Hebb's famous uh, teaching, 
that neurons that fire together wire together. It's also the case, if you take a look at the scatter plot, that normally we lose about 10,000 brain cells a day. That may seem like a lot, but if you start with 1.1 trillion, we usually have lost only a few percent by our 80th birthday. Also along the way, a few thousand new neurons are born in the brain every day in the hippocampus. So even if the hippocampus has been damaged by chronic stress, there's some possibilities for repair there over time. Okay. So we normally lose about 10,000 brain cells a day. That's called normal cortical thinning. The cortex, the root of its bark, it's like an outer skin or wrapping with a lot of convolutions, you know, hills and valleys in the brain. Um, normal cortical thinning due to aging uh, uh, causes normal cognitive decline due to aging. Not Alzheimer's, not dementia, but walking into a room and forgetting why you walked into the room. And having to walk back to the original room to remember why you walked into this room. <laughs> or name finding, numbers, stuff like that. You know, so uh, the, if you take a look at the scatter plots on the bottom, you're welcome to stand up to see it if you like. Uh, the red square folks are the control group. They did experience normal cortical thinning. In other words, in this so-called cohort study, it wasn't longitudinal. There's no money for a 30-year study on meditation, okay? But still, it was well done out of Harvard, etc. So the older red square people, if you see, their cortex is thinner. The thickness is the y-axis, the vertical axis, and millimeters. They have a thinner cortex than the younger blue square people, the control group. But if you look at the blue circle people, the meditators, you can see that the older meditators in these three regions had just as thick cortex as younger meditators did. In other words, they used it so they did not lose it, which has a lot of hopeful and motivating implications for the fruits of practice. In other words, in a traditional saying, the mind takes its shape from what it rests upon, for better or worse. The modern update, based on what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the idea that the brain is continually changing its structure based on lived experience, especially what we're paying focused attention to, uh, the modern update would be that the brain takes its shape from what we rest the mind upon, what we rest our attention upon, for better or worse. If we routinely rest our mind on things that stress us and uh, aggravate us and you know, rest our mind on self-criticism or that you know, grumbling case about others, whatever, we will have a brain that changes, that has an overly sensitized amygdala, a weakened hippocampus, uh, will deplete serotonin, which is an important neurotransmitter for calm and balance because serotonin is depleted in chronic stress, and will gradually build up reactive patterns that often create vicious circles with other people. On the other hand, if we routinely rest our mind, particularly our focused attention, on the facts, not making it up, the facts that are good, that are reasonable, that we actually do accomplish things over the course of a day. Flowers are blooming, someone somewhere is happy. If you could be happy for the happiness of others, as the Dalai Lama says, you can always be happy because someone somewhere is happy. All right? Um, and uh, yeah, if you're recognizing your own good qualities, if you're doing little practices and really registering the fruits of your own practice, uh, registering even a moment of self-restraint of patient or pa and patience, whatever, if you rest your mind on those things, your brain will gradually take a different shape. You know, it'll take a shape in which you'll have more activation in your left prefrontal cortex, which is associated with greater happiness. You'll build up tissue in parts of the brain that are regulatory and keep you balanced. 
Uh, you'll potentially even sensitize your brain over time to positive experiences so they become neural structure even more efficiently over time. You've changed your brain for the better. Right? That's the promise and possibility of self-directed neuroplasticity. That's the opportunity here. We can use our mind alone to change our brain, to change our mind for our own benefit and that of all beings. Now to do this, I want to create a little bit of a framework here and explain why I think that it's important to, as the Buddha identified in the Noble Eightfold Path, to engage in wise effort, to reduce the negatives and increase the positives in our mind. Well, deep teaching, fundamental framework of Buddhism is processes and causes. All right? Processes, uh, things arise and pass away. They're inherently impermanent, and they do so based on causes. So, focusing on the causes of suffering and the causes of the end of suffering is at the root of Buddhist practice, and also obviously at the root of well-being, resilience, healing, coping, and uh, the upper limits, really, of self-actualization and human potential. So how do we get the good causes going? Causes in the brain are shaped by momentary mental states that become installed as neural traits. Fleeting mental states can turn into lasting neural structure, for better or worse. States become traits. What we're especially interested in are traits, enduring factors, enduring causes inside us that make things better for ourselves and other people. The neural traits of the so-called poisons in Buddhism of hatred, greed, delusion, I'll toss in heartache because we're a profoundly social species, these various poisons, these traits inside us, these factors or causes inside the brain that are installed there is like programs, in a sense, software built into the hardware, that causes suffering and harm. On the other hand, different traits installed in the brain, inside a natural frame here, as causes inside our brain, uh, tendencies, factors, inclinations in the mind-brain system, the neural traits of inner strengths like virtue, or concentration, or wisdom, or loving-kindness, or equanimity, cause happiness and benefit for ourselves and other people. This, this may seem obvious, but I really want to emphasize this point. States become traits, for better or worse. We want to have fewer of the negative traits. We want to have more of the positive ones. If the brain-mind system were a garden, we want to be able to witness the garden, and we also want to be able to pull weeds and plant some flowers. So how do we build up the causes of inner uh, strengths? How do we build up positive traits inside us? Inner strengths, positive stra traits, are built mainly from positive experiences. It's a very fundamental and interesting point. Negative experiences can have lasting benefit. Often that lasting benefit is achieved at some real cost, certainly in personal distress, as well as the physical and mental health consequences of stress and upset. There's collateral damage, as it were, in the negative experiences that do lead to inner strengths. And often, there's no gain with the pain. It's just pain. I think uh, negative experiences are kind of overrated. So, <laughs> so 
So, by the way, someone has their cell phone on, maybe being aware of that, turning it off. So how do we get these inner strengths inside our brain? The brain is like a VCR or a DVR. It's not like an iPod. In other words, an iPod, you want to get a nice music track in there. You just plug it into your computer or put it in your wireless network, drag the icon over, zoop, right? You got that trait, as it were, that song, quote unquote, inside the iPod. The brain doesn't like that. It's old school, right? You record the music. You get that inner trait installed by playing the song. You got to play the song to record it in the brain. In other words, we need to have the experience that's positive for it to become encoded in neural structure. This is a lot of important implications. So we develop mindfulness by repeatedly being mindful. We develop compassion by repeatedly being compassionate. We develop wisdom by routinely helping our insights actually land inside the brain. You know, we build out some slots on the inner motherboard, as it were, so we can plug in these modules of these new positive experiences insights and capabilities. But here's the problem. The brain, as we'll see, is very efficient at turning uh, negative experiences into neural structure. Because as our ancestors evolved, they acquired what's called a negativity bias in the brain. Once burned, twice shy. Rule one in the wild is, eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Live to see the sunrise. Uh, You'll have another chance tomorrow to get the goodies of life, but you've got to get through today. So there's a kind of bottleneck in the brain in which it's fairly inefficient at turning positive experiences into neural structure, even though positive experiences, those positive songs, are the primary basis of the inner recordings, quote-unquote, of installed neural traits that are the basis of the strengths, the virtues, the wisdom, the concentration, the loving-kindness, the everyday resilience, the self-confidence, the feeling of worth, feeling loved, that we all want. How do, what are we going to do about this? How do we open up this bottleneck that helps positive experiences uh, become positive traits inside us? That's what we'll be exploring a lot in this workshop. But to do this, we have to get on our own side. because. You may know the kind of silly but profound joke, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. How many of you are in a helping profession, get paid to help people, educators, therapists, healthcare professionals, about a third, half the room? Be sure to get your CEUs, you deserve them. But anyway, yeah, whether you're a parent or a teacher, a therapist, whatnot, we've all experienced the light bulb that doesn't want to change, you know? Maybe we ourselves have occasionally been that light bulb that doesn't want to change. You know, being motivated to change and and wanting to change for the better is absolutely foundational. But that's actually not so easy for a lot of people. So building up a quality of self-compassion, you know, a wish that, that we not suffer, that oneself not suffer, much as we would wish others not suffer, is actually a very important basis for acquiring the traits uh, of happiness and growing equanimity. Self-compassion has a sense alongside it of self-advocacy. It's not just that we wish that we didn't suffer, but there's a kind of sort of inner muscularity, a certain warm-heartedness toward ourselves that we want to help ourselves not suffer. So in a moment, I propose to do a little practice with you on self-compassion. You'll have three steps to it. 
Uh, it's not the only way to be self-compassionate, but these are neurologically informed steps because they start warming up various circuits inside the mind-brain system that can help us be self-compassionate. And then at the end of this practice, we'll go into a break. And I'll stick around at the break and chat with you, and then we'll come back and discuss this. Okay, you want to try this? So, self-compassion on cue. Uh, just kidding. So, like a lot of things, you know, oftentimes we, we're, we're having a positive experience that's the basis for positive strengths, positive traits. We're usually having the positive experience already. That's great. We just notice it and help it sink in. But there is a place for self-activating useful states of mind. Obviously, there's some pitfalls around getting, for example, excessively manipulative or fabricating mental states of different kinds and using that as a way to suppress our pain or avoid seeing the hard things in life. Obviously, there's some pitfalls with that. Yet, on the other hand, being able to self-activate a useful state of mind is fundamental to resilience, to coping, to functioning at work, at home, to healing, to well-being, and certainly spiritual practice. So in a moment, you'll be self-activating some useful states of mind. Here we go in three steps. We're going to run the experiment again, a different kind this time. So to begin with, bring to mind a sense of being with someone who cares about you. In the first step, we're going to warm up the attachment circuits in the mind-brain system by receiving caring from others. These others who care about you could be in your life today or your past. They could be humans, a group of people, or a single person, or animals, pets perhaps, perhaps spiritual factors. Whatever it is, you're trying to kindle inside your mind. You're helping yourself have some sense of feeling cared about. It could be simply that you're included in a group, or perhaps that you're seen and understood by someone, or perhaps respected or appreciated or perhaps liked, or even cherished and loved. Any sense of feeling cared about is fine. I'll be quiet for a few moments as you help yourself have a growing sense of feeling cared about, perhaps aided by putting a hand on the heart or a hand on your cheek to strengthen this experience. What's it like to feel liked? What's it like to feel that someone cares about you? And then in the second step, letting the sense of being cared about move a little more into the background of awareness and focusing now on someone you care about, especially someone that it's easy to have compassion for. Compassion simply being the wish that a being not suffer, usually combined with feelings of tender or sympathetic concern. 
bringing to mind someone you feel compassion for, helping the experience of compassion to grow inside you. Knowing what the experience of compassion is like, perhaps strengthening it with soft thoughts in the back of your mind, like, may you not suffer, or perhaps something specific, such as, may you find work, may you recover from your illness, may you not worry so much about your children, opening to compassion, waves of compassion, rippling out from you, extending to this being and perhaps other beings as well. Feeling compassion in your body, even a subtle sense, perhaps around the heart, maybe a warmth around the heart, a quality of intention, a wishing that that a being not suffer. And then in the third step, Knowing what compassion is like as an experience and an attitude, uh, compassion as a stance, now swinging this compassion, applying it to the being who wears your name tag, the one being among all others, that's you. Perhaps seeing yourself uh, in front of yourself or just sort of knowing your own suffering being aware of challenges, difficulties you face. Not getting swept away by the difficulties or suffering, but continually recentering in the compassion, the warm-heartedness, the sweet concern You might strengthen this experience with soft thoughts, perhaps using your name. If I were to do it, may you, Rick, not suffer, using your own name, of course, or variations on it like, may I not suffer, or specific soft thoughts such as, may I find work, or may I not worry so much about the children, or may my own chemotherapy go well. 
You might even get a sense of yourself as a child, perhaps a child back then, a little boy, a little girl, or maybe a younger layer of your psyche today, being aware of difficult things, perhaps yourself as a younger adult experienced or all the way back to childhood, maybe bringing some things to mind, not getting sucked into the pain, the things that happen, but rather continually extending caring and compassion to younger parts of yourself or times when you were younger, wishing yourself well. And then as a kind of bonus, if it's real for you, you might get a sense of receiving compassion because deep down in your brain, it doesn't know what the source of an experience is. If this is not real for you, it's fine, but you might get a sense if you can, of what is it like to feel like you've received care and compassion and good wishes So it's perfectly good to remain equanimous over the day and sustain a quality of self-compassion for yourself as we go into a 20-minute break. So if you could, please come back at quarter after 11. Uh, The bathroom's here and outside there. If uh, the, the men's bathroom becomes empty, post a guard, use it for women too. And we'll see you at a quarter after 11. Take care. I have two very succinct questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.